Welcome to A Learner's Journey. My name is Molly Sanders, and the goal of this podcast is to inspire and motivate you by connecting you with a variety of passionate horsewomen and men who have dedicated their lives to helping horses and their people. I'm grateful you're here. I'm excited to share with you a recent conversation I had with the fabulous Christy Smith. Christy has been a horsemanship coach for 15 years and is passionate about helping people achieve excellence in their partnership with their horses. We covered a wide variety of topics and our conversation actually lasted over two hours, so I decided to break it into two parts. In this first part, you'll hear a bit about how Christy's challenging childhood influenced the horsewoman she's become. We also explore the topic of emotional frequencies and how practicing joy can make us a better partner for our horses. I'm glad you're here and I hope you enjoy part one of the conversation. Hi, Christy. Hey, Molly, good to see you. Good to see you too. I'm really excited that you've decided to join me on the podcast. I've I'm honored been, to be here. Awesome. I've been thinking about reaching out to you and then um, I get requests quite a bit for different people to interview and your name keeps coming up and, uh, and nice. we, we know each other and so I thought, well, I'll yeah, her and see if she'll join in. So I really appreciate you being here. So one of the things that I love hearing about from people is how they got started. And I think a lot of times like people that might know you really well, maybe there's things that they don't know about your beginning. So how did it all start? Well, I was a lucky kid in one way and uh, pretty unlucky in a lot of other ways, but um, I, I essentially grew up in a in family foster system. So I wasn't officially in the foster care system but I got passed around in inside of family, through family members quite a bit as a kid. My parents um, should have never had children. <laughs> um, they just were not, you know, equipped to be good parents. Right. And they, they did the best they could and I love them, but um, they sucked at it. <laughs> and so um, luckily I had, you know, uh, an aunt in particular, my aunt Peggy, um, is who I spent the most time with and she had horses and, um, uh, but also, um, uh, my mom's family are, um, rodeo people. I have two aunts who went to the national finals in high school rodeo for barrel racing. My grandfather was a bull rider and my, uh, and then when he had all girls <laughs> for kids, then he started training barrel horses. He's sort of regionally well-known by people who barrel raced in like the eighties. Right. <laughs> so sure. I doubt if you like walked in a rodeo and, and use my grandfather's name right now, nobody would know, but, um, right. back in the day, he was really well known, used to, um, do a pretty good business on, um, training and then campaigning the barrel horses with his daughters and then selling them for a profit and stuff like that. So, um, it kind of runs in the genealogy. I grew up mostly just trail riding though. I didn't spend a lot of time with my mom's family as a kid, uh, but aunt Peggy had horses and we did, we like to go trail riding. So That's really I can, cool. it's like, as for as long as I can remember, there was always a horse option. I might not have lived there, but, um, I had a relationship with my aunt Peggy that it, you know, if things were tough with, I spent a lot of my early childhood with my dad, 
And if I didn't want to be there, I could easily say, hey, dad, can I go to Aunt Peggy's today? And he just assumed it was because I wanted to ride. And some of it was that <laughs> it was also mm-hmm. an escape for me. Um, and then I went to live with her when I was 12. So I spent like 12 through um, young adulthood with Aunt Peggy. So I, was, I always had a horse there. That was it was part of my childhood. Wow. So she was basically like down the road, like you could get on your bike or something and head there or. Well, I, yeah, it wasn't exactly just down the road, mm-hmm. but, but, and I did get on my bike to go there from mm-hmm. the time I could, my dad would let me ride my bike to aunt Peggy's house from the time I was eight. And it was um, a good five miles away, like out in the country, wow. down gravel roads. Wow. Uh, yeah. It was a long ways away. I'm a Gen Xer, you know, like we rode our bikes a long ways. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, as long, I, as you were, as long as you were home before the, the streetlights came on, it exactly. was not a big deal. Everybody yeah. did it. Right, right. And I did a lot of bike riding, but I don't think I did five miles. I remember like finding out that our <laughs> school, which we thought was forever away, was like a quarter mile away. <laughs> so yeah, five miles. Is yeah, no, it was it was it was a ways out. It was a ways yeah. out. I got I, I tolerate getting chased by dogs on the way there. So just so that I could go and ride horses. Right. That's really cool. So you were pretty young, like, well, from a super young age, you had horses around you, but then you said you went to live with aunt Peggy around 12. Um, yep. did you, I mean, did you start thinking about doing it professionally then? So it started a little bit. Well, yeah, yeah. It, a little bit. I did. Um, one of my older cousins had a relationship with a local trainer where she would go And, um, that trainer would, um, groom her to campaign her Western pleasure horses. And so I just thought that was the coolest thing. She got to wear really cool clothes, like Mm -hmm. colored jeans and these shirts that I really liked and everything matched, like the Uh hat matched the shirt and the pants and the boots and the whole thing. And I was infatuated with her chaps and, um, the whole thing. I just thought it was, you know, it, it also, you know, triggered my creative needs. And, um, I just thought that was super neat. Yeah. So if, by, by the time I w- would see her do her thing with the local trainer, I, I really started to get interested in, um, you know, wanting to make a life livelihood out of, you know, knowledge of horses. Right. That's, that's cool. Um, so you mentioned campaigning horses a couple of times. What, what is that? So anytime, um, not anytime, but a lot of times when horses are owned by someone who there's purpose for, for that person is to be resold. Um, they'll get more money for them if they can show them successfully in whatever sport or discipline they choose. So, um, you know, the, my cousin's trainer was a Western pleasure trainer. And so in order to get more money for their, for her horses, she needed those horses to get time in a show ring and do well. And because my cousin was a minor, then she could show those horses in the amateur classes and be competitive. Um, whereas if she had been an adult or if she'd been getting paid, she'd have to show them in the open classes and it'd be more competitive. And the same thing with my, my granddad and the barrel horses, right. And to get the most amount of money, you got to get people to see and want your horse. Right. So if you go to the rodeo and kick some butt, on a pretty regular basis, that's going to draw some attention and, you know, you'll get competing offers and things like that. So 
and it, 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 you'll find it in any sport inventing or dressage or cutting or reining that they say right. you know a, a trainer who sells horses for that discipline campaigns them in their sport okay okay cool and i knew that i knew that was the thing i just didn't know the term for it so um that's cool so a lot of people know you as coach christie so you've been doing this now professionally for quite some time like couple 15 years 15 years so not quite 15 um and one of the things i really appreciate about you is your willingness to share your the things that you're learning like even right now like you know you're you're posting things on facebook and sharing about your horses and and things that have been challenging for you um and i really appreciate that that you do that um, so what would you say, what, what's one of the biggest lessons that horses have brought to you? It's a really difficult question to answer because it's like literally everything about my life has been changed as I learn and understand more. And it's just, you know, layer upon layer. Um, but that's Maxie in the poster behind me. Right. And, um, she would have been the first horse to teach me something. My childhood horses, I, you know, would have had a lot to teach me if I'd been ready for it, but they, they were more like, um, protectors that <laughs> they, they gave me a place to go where I felt safe and, and accepted and loved. But, um, Maxie's first lesson to me, because, you know, you know her, but I'll describe, mm -hmm. um, her, I call, I call her my short eared mule, right. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Cause she's, super opinionated and really not interested in most human things. It's really every, you know, interaction is negotiated. And I, when I first got her, let's see, she's 20. So I would have been <coughs> 27. So in my late twenties, because mm -hmm. she's been with me her whole life. I bought her the day she was born. Um, she, she is not the kind of horse that you can intimidate into getting something done. Mm -hmm. You cannot whack her to get her to do it. Mm -hmm. So in, in my twenties and early thirties, even still, that's was my go-to move, right? The, the reason I could get some stuff done with horses is because I was kind of forceful, mm -hmm. um, in, in a, in a, you know, feminine kind of way, but I was mm -hmm. still just forcing them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, mo mostly just out persisting, but, um, you cannot out persist this horse. It, and if all you're using is pressure, she does not care. She mm -hmm. has a huge, um, tolerance for being uncomfortable. She just would look at you and like smirk, like, is that it? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, her first lesson to me was to like, it's okay to soften, right? I had spent a lot of time um, in my teens and twenties, developing a pretty hard outer shell because life sucked. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I had the, a very typical sort of, um, type a way of seeing things. Like if you want something done, you got to do it yourself. And it, you know, I don't need anybody else's help. I'm going to do it. And no matter what it takes, I'm gonna get this done. Right. And Maxie's response to, to that was, I don't think so. <laughs> and so. So anytime I would try to force her to do something, she would buck. Like I, I have had, you know, a lifetime of experience with horses and that is the horse I've been bucked off the most. My, my most advanced, you know, right. uh, 
partner has unloaded me more times than I can remember. I have mm-hmm. no, no idea. I lost count a long time ago. Right. So it, 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 she had to, you know, do that quite a f- number of times before I could learn to realize that the problem wasn't her. I was the problem. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's really the, the lesson that sparked it all was just her getting me to realize that being forceful isn't always the best way to go. You know, that sometimes right. you, you might need to listen to your partner and, you know, understand what their needs are. <laughs> And, um, you know, if you get good at providing for them, then maybe they'll be a bit more willing to meet you somewhere. But, um, she, she was my best teacher and showed up exactly at the right time I needed her to. Well, and it's really interesting too, with what you shared about your childhood that, you know, one of the things that you had to do to protect yourself was to have that hard shell. Yeah. And yeah, I was a tough kid. I was, I was in a tough kid. I was a, tomboy. I was proud of that. I, I, I had very little, um, interest in being perceived as feminine. Um, because to me that got equated with being weak Mm -hmm. and, um, not because I'm not a particularly feminine person. I just saw it as a weakness. Right. And so, um, you know, that, that, that whole process from zero to 27 had me pride myself on how tough I was, right? right? Like I have a tattoo on my left shoulder, not because I like love the idea of tattoos. I got it to prove how tough I was <laughs> at, tw- at 22 years old. It wasn't that tough. That right. hurt. <laughs> right. But um, uh, yeah. So, she, you know, she, she came along at a time where I was at a crossroads and right. if I didn't learn um, to soften my relationship with her wasn't the only one that was um, teetering. <laughs> it was pretty much right. any relationship I had that I cared right. about was on the brink of breakdown because of my direct lineedness. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's super interesting because, you know, I'm thinking about how that, that was a strength for you. It was how you survived and, and you prided yourself on it too. I'm totally relating to this by the way, because I didn't, I didn't have a tough childhood, but I learned from a young age that like my dad used to really um, think it was really cute when I'd be, when I'd be tough. So I was like, okay, cool. This is the way to, you know, be. And um, part of that. So that was, that was a strength of mine, but then like you're saying with her, it, it didn't get you anywhere. So it had become a weakness. And the other thing yeah. about being like that is you don't have a need to um, listen and have a conversation. Right. You're just going about your thing. Right. So you yeah. really had to make a change or get a different horse. Like, so that kind of intrigues me. Like why, why did you stick with her? Right. So um, another sort of side effect from the childhood that I had was that um, I don't enter into an, into a partnership lightly, whether it's with, you know, a, a intimate partner, a friend, or my equine partners. If, if I invite someone into my life on an intimate basis, I intend to see it through no matter what, basically, <laughs> maybe yeah. to a, a fault. Because, you know, as a kid, I, I experienced a lot of, you know, breakups and 
it, it always, as an observer, you know, a child observer, it just seemed to me that they weren't trying hard enough, that they were, you know, just everybody's looking for a way out. And, um, and I raised Maxie from a baby. I, I, I ordered her from the universe. Like mm-hmm. I met, she has a full brother and I met him as a yearling while she was in utero mm-hmm. and I loved him. He was black and white. I'd always wanted a black and white paint. Um, and he was sassy and big and dramatic, you know, all checked in all the box boxes, but the woman who owned him wasn't interested in selling him. She loved him too. And Mm -hmm. so I went to the breeder and asked, you know, I want that horse, like, but if it could be a Philly, that'd be great. (laughs) And the following June, she calls me up and says, Hey, your horse was born last night. And when I tell you it was love at first sight, it absolutely hundred percent was the Mm -hmm. second I saw her with my eyeballs, like, yep, that's my horse mm-hmm. and started making payments on her because <laughs> uh, I couldn't even afford to buy her. Like the, right. she was a thousand dollars as a weanling, which to me in the, in the, what was it? Um, 2001, that was a ton of money. Yeah. So I made payments on her until she was, um, wean and, you know, so I was already madly in love with her. So okay. you know, for me, that's just like, there's no way a horse that I raised from a baby. There's a reason why I don't breed my mares because <laughs> right. right. it would not be, I would not, it would be a resale fail. Like every right. baby I'm raised is probably going to stay with me. So, right. um, it it's, I, I, when I, you know, enter into those kinds of partnerships, it might take me a while to decide to do it. But once I do decide to do it, I'm, I'm married. I'm not dating. <laughs> like right. it's, it's, the, it's, I'm going to, you know, aside from, you know, we all have our non-negotiables that like if somebody um, crossed that line that y- you wouldn't stay. But sure. um, outside of that, I'm, I'm ready to negotiate just about any difficulty. Right. And like you'd said, I, I was, that you don't enter uh, partnerships lightly. You probably would have seen right. those non-negotiables before you, you know, right. entered into the partnership. Yeah. 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 And I knew I felt. I had enough confidence in myself as a budding horse trainer that if she, mm-hmm. you know, whatever problems she might have that I should be able to help her with. And if I can't, if I had to sell her for behavioral issues, that would just make me feel like a failure. Like I, this, there's no way Right. <laughs> I'd right. have to admit defeat. Come right. on, Molly. Right. I can admit I defeat. <laughs> <laughs> Not giving up that easily. Have, um, right. I have another right now that I'm in that situation with. I'm like, well, I might not ever ride you very much, but uh-huh. uh, you're, you live here forever. <laughs> right. Right. I have one of those two. I'm determined to learn as much as I can, whether I get back on yeah. or not. So yeah. Right. And now it's time for a short commercial break. It's hard to believe that it's been almost two years since I embarked on this new adventure of putting together virtual clinics. They've become such a special way to study with a variety of horsemen and women from no matter where you are in the world. I'm excited to let you know about the newest virtual learning opportunity coming your way March 19th. Raising the Bar Virtually is a chance for you to learn with two of the most dedicated and accomplished horse developers I know, John and Kathy Barr. In this three-week interactive clinic, they'll introduce you to a framework of five key ingredients to have with your horse while riding. 
Not only will you learn how to practice these key elements, but you'll learn why they're important and how they can inform you about your horse's mental, emotional, and physical state. You'll build more refined communication while riding and a better understanding of how to improve for the future. You can learn more at shinealightproductions.net. I hope you'll join us. And now back to the interview with Christy. So you've talked about this concept and I don't know if I'm going to use the right terminology, but, um, and I don't remember where I heard you talk about it. I think it was either on one of your Facebook videos or when I, uh, came and watched you teach a clinic, but you were talking about this idea that our emotional states, um, have different, yeah. yeah, different frequencies. And mm-hmm. I, that really kind of caught my attention and, um, and so I'd love, I'd love to hear more about that. Um, yeah. 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 I'd love to tell you it is in my book, my new, my new book with Linda, oh, um, how to, to, how to develop emotional fitness in horses. Okay. Um, but so I'm a nerd. <laughs> so I am <I'm> constantly, <laughs> I'm constantly, um, reading and, you know, it's, it's always a train like this book recommended that one and so on and so on it's you know sometimes a book that gets recommended you get a a chapter in and you're like no that's not for me but um one of the books I read that I learned well let me back it up a little bit before any of this happened um in when I was on the Pirelli faculty team I think it was probably like 2008 um David Uloa from uh Florida Mm-hmm. the shark whisperer guy, yeah. um, you know, came in as an an- animal behavioralist, right? Cause I mean, we're studying horse behavior, but you know, um, mammals are similar in lots of ways. And mm-hmm. he, he's an avid, you know, um, horse lover too. Mm-hmm. So he came, we invited him to come cause he's friends with Pat and Linda and that sort of thing. And so we invited him to come and talk about what he does. And one of the, you know, he goes through his whole spiel about, you know, um, his passion for sharks and how they're really misunderstood and, um, that we need to do better for them because they keep balance in the, um, ecosystem and the ocean. And if we lose them, all kinds of things will get out of whack. And so, um, you know, he gives the whole spiel and then, you know, he opens it up for questions. And the first question he says, he always gets asked this question first, like, how do you not get eaten by a shark like he swims great whites in the whole thing he's not like just swimming with you know the the smaller less dangerous ones like he's swimming with giant scary sharks and he said he he said that that sharks have um a sensory perception that isn't sonar it isn't sight it isn't sound or anything like that but they have a way of perceiving the emotional state of the the you know organisms around them and they will deliberately and you know be drawn to to uh, frequencies or emotional states that are in distress right so a lot of times people who get bitten by sharks it's because they're like exerting themselves and that puts their body in a fight or flight mode and that triggers the shark to think that they they'd have a better chance at a successful hunt Mm -hmm. so um Uh, he said, I simply tell the sharks with my body language and with my energy, I am not food. (laughs) So that's, and he, and David in that um, lecture to us 
mentioned that he got the sense that horses have that sense as well, right? That they mm-hmm. have a, a sensitivity to our thoughts and emotions. Mm-hmm. And at the time when he said it, I'm like, yeah, of course they do. And then my brain was like, well, you're not very careful with those things sometimes, you know? <laughs> and <laughs> so that kind of started me on, on the journey of thinking about it. But a couple of years ago, somehow I got led to a book called Becoming Supernatural mm-hmm. um, by Dr. Joe Dispenza. And um, it, it, it's really very like black and white in, in the book. It's, mm-hmm. it's well-researched uh, and um, evidence-based information that um, we emit a, an EMF, right? Um, electromagnetic field. And the, the, our EMF will um, change frequencies depending on how we feel and what we're thinking. Even um, like different parts of us emit di- different frequencies. So the strongest um, frequency, like the, the one that'll reach the farthest comes from our brain because it's the largest organ. Mm-hmm. And then our heart is the next um, strongest. Mm-hmm. But imagine then the reverse of that with horses. Their heart is bigger than their brain. So their frequency is strongest emanating from, um, you know, the heart intelligence and ours comes mm-hmm. from our brain intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, you know, all of that's been documented through the heart math Institute, um, with all kinds of sciencey stuff that I don't pretend to understand or know, but, mm-hmm. um, the, so, um, Dr. Dispenza, um, charted emotional frequencies and what he discovered was that the more like um, positive or empowering the emotion is that you're experiencing, the higher the frequency is. So what happens when we have a higher frequency is our molecules start to vibrate faster and it causes the very little parts of us that are actually physical, just Mm -hmm. very small percentage of who we actually are it actually separates them more and we become more spacious, right? We become more energy. Hmm. And then the more um, disempowering or, um, you know, negative the emotions are, the frequency slows down. So that causes the molecules to come closer together and we become more dense. Um, So, you know, more matter and less energy. Mm -hmm. So, my hypothesis is, and it's just that it's just my guess is that, um, when we vibrate at neutral or higher, so a neutral vibration, I believe is 250 Hertz. Mm -hmm. Um, if we can keep our vibration above 250, Mm -hmm. then our horses have a better chance of perceiving us as a source of harmony. Mm -hmm. But if our frequency gets below 250, then we're dangerous. We get perceived as something that they should defend themselves from. Mm -hmm. And they do it in different ways. When Maxie needs to defend herself from me, she just shuts down, right? She just plants Mm -hmm. her butt and refuses to move where a more tense horse like pull on you and try to get away. Mm -hmm. So um, what I also found interesting about all of that was two of the emotions that vibrate the lowest are shame and guilt, not frustration or anger. Yeah. One of the things that pops into my mind as you're saying this is I think a lot of us hear these things and then start going, Oh no, like what if it's a snowball? 
Yeah. Like, oh, I've, I, 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 I was frustrated the other day or, um, or what if I don't have a high enough frequency? Like, you know, and I could, I could see that you kind of get feeling shameful or, or guilty. Um, frustration and anger vibrate. I'm, I, I might not be exact, but I'm pretty sure it's around 150 mm-hmm. uh, hertz. Shame and guilt vibrate at 30 and 20 hertz. So the only thing that vibrates at nothing at zero it is dead. If, mm-hmm. if, if something, um, a mass is vibrating at zero, the energy of that thing has left it. Right. So right. it's, it's, there's no vibration. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's unhealthy for you to vibrate mm-hmm. down there. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- the opposite I think is really exciting too, in that, um, love vibrates at 500. So that's mm-hmm. well above neutral. And then joy is actually higher than love and it vibrates at 540. So for me, learning to be able to on purpose pull up a joyful feeling um, is a critical component to having a partnership with a horse. It's, it's literally the, it's, so for me, you know, pressure and release is great. I don't, you know, obviously I use that, you know, I don't have a problem with the word obedience, mm-hmm. but you know, especially when I'm on the 1200 pound animal that might like do all kinds of crazy stuff. I like it when she does what I ask her to Right. <laughs> find yeah. that comforting. Right. But at the same time, I don't want that to be the only thing reason she does what I ask her to do. So in, if, if all we do is pressure and release, then all we're teaching our horses is to hunt for the conversation to be over, right? So what do I got to do to get you to stop whacking me? What do I got to do to get you to stop poking me and pulling me and things like that? Nothing about the interaction is pleasing. What's pleasing is when it's over. Right. Whereas instead, if we can use pressure to guide our horses towards lightness Mm -hmm. and then have a joyful feeling while we're interacting, Mm-hmm. The interaction itself becomes reinforcing, right? It be we because I my guess is that because we're both social species, we crave that kind of interaction, right? That mm-hmm. that that feeling of synergy, that one mind kind of like you know I'm not sure if that was you or if that was me kind of feeling mm-hmm. right. that that we can do that when we come together we can do more than either of us could do alone, mm-hmm. and without the ability to f- have a joyful feeling in the moments that it is light and harmonious, then it's not reinforcing. You, there's no, um, po- you know, positive reinforcement to it. it. It's all you can hope for is that your horse learns how to shut you up, right? They, they learn how to get you to leave them alone or to stop whacking them or pulling on them. Right. So um, for me, it's super important. That's always been a big deal to me is that, um, I, I don't want to just impose my will on my horses. And I know, like, you know, there's lots of words out there that I don't always necessarily resonate with, including like alpha and dominant and mm-hmm. um, the leader even. I, I like to be the decision maker for sure. Um, but I also want to hear what my horse has to say about what we're up to. And I wanted to, to be the kind of leadership that she finds joy in me being the leader, not just relief. Relief yeah. is great. It, it points you in the right direction, but I want her to feel good about me being the leader. It, an example for me in human terms is 
a lot of people perceive me as a dominant person. I come across that way. I've been told, um, <laughs> but um, that doesn't mean I always want to be the leader. There's a lot of pressure and responsibility that comes with that. Right. And so I married a man who knows when to be the leader and when mm-hmm. to let me lead. Mm-hmm. And in those moments where I need him to step up and take care of things, when he does, I feel so much affection for him, like mm-hmm. so much joy and appreciation for that. And that's how I want my horses to feel like, oh, good. Christy's got a handle on it. Right. And I know she can, you know, she'll take care of the situation versus like, well, I better do what I'm told or she's going to get mad. You know, like right. I don't, I don't ever want that kind of um, relationship with them. So the, the, the concept of emotional frequency, emotional frequencies has, um, completely, um, changed how I interact, not just with my horses, but with everyone. And, um, that doesn't mean I don't use the contracted emotions there, you know, the, the below two fifty emotions. If I deliberately don't want <laughs> to, to talk to someone or have uh-huh. them participate in my life, uh-huh. I, I, I can pull those up pretty easily uh-huh. and repel someone on purpose. Like that's, right. I think legit, you know? Uh-huh. And, um, but for the people who think that they can't do that, it, it's just a, a discipline. It just requires practice. So I've had a, a lots of weird experiences throughout my life, but, um, one of the things I did in college was I took a, an, an acting class. It was an acting for television mm-hmm. um, course. Uh-huh. So one of the types of nerds I was in school was a theater nerd. Was uh-huh. lots of kinds of nerds. The music nerd. I was an academic nerd, <laughs> and I was a theater nerd. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> I was that's good. You're, you're well-rounded. So. You're well-rounded in your nerddom. That's good. I have lots of facets of nerddom. <laughs> um, but um, so in this class, we got. We, you know, we did a lot of different um, exercises around how to portray honest emotions. Um, and, you know, a lot of it's a little unhealthy. I think that's why actors are nuts, because <laughs> if they're good, they actually feel the emotions that they're like, they're really going through it. Mm-hmm. It's not pretend like it's actually right. happening in their system. So that's why they get a little loony. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the, the things we were taught how to do was how to smile for photos, right? It's like to get headshots and stuff. So it's how to smile in a way that produces a natural smile. Uh-huh. And, it's, and the concept is easy. Like have a thought, a memory, or even, you know, something that you made up in your head mm-hmm. that, that, you know, really re- reliably just causes you to smile. You know, right. it could be, you know, about your, about your horse or a spouse or a memory or a dream, uh, just anything that naturally causes you to smile. And, um, what I've discovered over the years of using that, you know, cause as instructors, we get asked to have our picture taken somewhat regularly. Mm-hmm. And, um, you can always tell the days that I forget to use that technique because <laughs> my smile looks coarse. Right. Um, but, um, what I realized though, is that I don't need the memory anymore. I don't need the imagery anymore. I have a muscle memory for what joy feels like in my nervous system. And, as long as I'm not triggered, <coughs> right. It's harder to do if you're like hijacked by your limbic system and mm-hmm. full on fight or flight, then, right. then you're dealing, you know, hormones and stuff. But as long as I'm not triggered, I have a muscle memory. I know where that feeling lives in my nervous system and I can pull it up, you know, pretty reliably anytime I want. And then, you know, when you're with your horses, that should be easy, right? <laughs> you know, 
it, I don't know if you, of course you remember Satori, right? I mm-hmm. lost her in March. I put her down in March, but um, she was quite the little handful mm-hmm. of a girl. Right. And um, I love that about her. And she would often do things that had the potential to trigger me to get frustrated right. or angry. Right. And um, when she was little, I used to say to her, little shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I started to realize that that was not helping, right? That that was mm-hmm. pulling my frequency down. And it was for her, it, when given the choice between fight or flight, she would choose fight, right? Mm-hmm. So if my frequency got low and she felt she needed to defend herself, then she was ready to fight with me. Mm-hmm. But if instead I could say, I love you, right? Every time she'd do something kind of sassy or naughty, mm-hmm. like, and I meant it, you know, it wasn't like I didn't mean it when I would say it. I love you right. and I'd say it out loud because that's mm-hmm. the weirdo I am mm-hmm. um it, you know I could pull my frequency up pretty quick and she'd stop fighting so um I think that we all have some version of that you know that little girl or that little boy that just the the minute you knew or understood what a horse was you needed it Yes. Right. Like yes. we're still the weird, crazy horse kids that mm-hmm. if you pass a pasture and you see horses in the field, you think, are you happy? Are you having right. a good life? Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and or, or a, a horse trailer passes you on the road. You think, Ooh, where are you going? I bet you're mm-hmm. having fun today. Like, you know, right. can I come? <laughs> right. That kind of thing. Like yeah. we get excited no matter what the scenario is. And we just need to stay connected to that. I think sometimes we just take it all a bit too seriously. And, um, you know, one of the things I'm famous for saying is I used to say, we're not curing cancer here, folks, mm-hmm. but now I'll say we're not curing COVID here, folks. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I mean, there's a time and a place to be serious. We need to have reverence for safety things, but, sure. um, whether or not my horse will put two feet on the trailer or perform a clean flying change or, you know, whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. It's not, it's not life or death, um, in those examples. Uh, yeah. So I, when, when you are, like you said, when you get triggered, um, and you know that your emotions, your, the frequencies are low, um, what, what do you, what do you do? Do you like leave the situation or are you, have you practiced the higher frequencies enough that they're, like you said, they're automatic? Could you like, what would, no, you, I would, what would you coach I, someone to do? Yeah. So yeah. Th- they're not automatic for me. I still have moments where I get triggered. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, don't beat yourself up if you don't get it perfect tomorrow. But mm-hmm. um, a, a couple of things I keep reminding myself that, gr- you know, being grateful is the pathway to positive emotions, no matter what. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I tried before it gets too far gone in my nervous system, in my bloodstream and things like that. I try to keep reminding myself of a couple of things. First, how lucky I am to have this creature in my life, right? I, I desperately love all of my horses and, um, the, the flip side to that, and I'll try to say it without getting emotional, but losing Satori this year, um, really put the nail on the head for that one. Like, I don't miss not being able to do flying changes with her. I miss right. her, right. right? I don't need, you know, tasks or behaviors from her. If, 
if somebody gave me one more day with her, I wouldn't ride her. I just want to be with her. I just wanted yeah. to hang out with her and um, spend that time. And no matter how young they are or what your plans are for that horse, someday you're probably going to have to put them under the ground. And I'm going to tell you right now, that sucks. Right. And the things that I think about now aren't the things that we didn't accomplish. Right. I, my regrets are around losing my cool with her. I mm-hmm. regret any time I might've gotten frustrated or angry and just, I wish I would have spent more time. And I spent a ton of time with that horse. But, um, if I knew then what I know now I'd spend double, triple, quadruple as right. much time as I could squeeze in every day with her. Right. I wouldn't make a single excuse not to. Um, so that's, that's been a big deal to me. Now, all of that philosophical making you cry stuff <laughs> aside, uh-huh. as, you know, a basic understanding of your nervous system and how things work, um, is important too. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, you can't wish it away. Right. And so if, um, you get triggered and you feel your, your frequency, um, get pulled below the 250, and I have some, um, red flags in physically in my body. Like, mm-hmm. um, my personality has me, um, tighten in the throat and chest when I start to get pulled because I too am the animal that if given the choice between fight or flight, I will pretty regularly choose fight. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel a growl come up in my chest. Like, Ugh. and so if I catch it soon enough, then I can use a breathing technique to release it. So, um, there's lots of strategies around, um, breath work to mm-hmm. release, um, tension, right. Um, there's the, the, um, the four breath one that the, um, this Navy SEALs use yeah. where, you know, you square breathe in breathing. for four. Yeah. Square breathing. That's what, yeah. They, yeah. You breathe in for four, hold for four, breathe out for four, hold that for four yeah. until you feel everything relax. And then there's another strategy that says that if, if you breathe in fast, in, and in your nose and out slow through the mouth. If the out breath is longer than the in, that also triggers the um, parasympathetic, you know, gets mm-hmm. you back into rest and recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, the, the other thing, a couple other things is to understand that not only have you triggered um, your nervous system, you've triggered biochemicals in your body. So if you've flooded your system with stress hormones, um, you're going to have to move to get it out. You can't stand there. So oftentimes I'll just walk around the arena. I'll get down if I'm riding (laughs) Um, and then I'll walk, walk around the arena and, and choose one of those um, breathing exercises until I feel a sense of relief from the um, stress hormones. Right. Um, And then recently, and it's not particularly convenient, but um, the, uh, an important um, piece of our anatomy to get familiar with is the, the vagal nerve system, right? So there's a nerve that connects our heart with our head and Mm -hmm. information gets shared back and forth through the, through the vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. And, um, the, a lot of studies show that the heart's actually telling the brain more than the brain is telling the heart. There is a Mm -hmm. type of intelligence in the nervous system that's in our heart. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, a couple of things that, um, can help the, the vagus nerve to trigger your parasympathetic is, um, to, uh, it, 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 apparently it works better if you're lying down, but I've never tried it lying down in the arena. Mm -hmm. Um, but the, 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 there's something about turning your head to one side as far as you can, and then looking 
as far as you can to, in that direction. And, and it almost always gets me to yawn. If mm. I do it long enough, you do that both ways until it triggers a yawn and a yawn is a good indication that you um, are returning to the parasympathetic. Mm -hmm. And then, and I haven't tried this one, but I'm keen to, um, getting cold, getting something cold on your chest, like right here on your sternum. Cause that's where the nerve is most closest to the surface. Mm -hmm. Getting something cold here can also, um, trigger the parasympathetic. And then, you know, I use essential oils and all that stuff. I usually mm -hmm. have lavender pretty handy mm -hmm. <laughs> if I feel like it could be a stressful, um, you know, interaction, things like that. But right. also if I just feel like I can't get my my frequency wrangled, I just put my horse away. Like I, mm -hmm. I obviously need more information. The only, the only time we get that frustrated or angry or worried is when we, we don't know what to do. So right. and for, lucky for me, I have Linda at the end of a text. <laughs> I right. can just right. like, Hey, this is what happened today. Yeah. Fix it. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and get, and get, get pretty, pretty good feedback. Yeah. And I think that's so helpful to hear that, you know, you've been, really interested in all of this for a long time and you've been you know studying it and and practicing it but still there are times that you need to completely leave because i think sometimes we get it in our head that oh well you don't need to do that anymore or, you know you've got it all figured out right and um but it's uh, it's so good to know that it's um everybody needs to kind of practice similar things. You don't just get to reach a certain place and never have to practice it anymore. It gets easier. Like you said, the, the right. joy response is much more available now, right. but if you stopped practicing it, it wouldn't be right. Like right. you have to keep going with it. So that's super, super helpful. And so interesting um, to hear about. I've never seen Linda lose her cool. So I, I don't know. I, I think that some of the reason why I probably still struggle with it is because I had a traumatizing childhood. So I, I rehearsed those things in my, um, in myself enough that they're pretty hardwired. Right. And I have, I don't really have the expectation that I would ever come to a day where like, ta-da, I'm like this Zen, like, <laughs> you know, horse lover that no matter right. what kind of, silliness my horse throws at me that I'm just okay with it but right. um I, I've never seen Linda lose her cool so I can't say that no one ever achieves that state of like being able to just like be cool no matter what but right um I'm not with her all the time too so who knows right <laughs> I don't know well, and I think I think part of it is like one um I love the idea of the the more time you put in doing yeah. the not doing the appropriate things, you're going to get better and better and better. Right. So it's just a matter. I can of explain that. Yeah. That's, that's also the result of the nervous system, right? The, the, the circuits that fire together, wire together. Yes. And the more often they fire together, the, the tighter they get wired together. Right. So there, there is a fatty protein that, that encapsulates the circuitry that every time you use that circuit, that fatty protein puts a layer on there, a layer of insulation. Mm -hmm. It's called myelin and the process mm -hmm. is called myelination. And so every time you use that circuit, it gets more and more insulated. So the, the, the signal gets stronger and faster and like chosen quicker and things like that. So anything 
like for me that I've been rehearsing since birth, basically the, the whole, like I can do it myself and I don't need you for anything. And right. I'm tough and, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. That's, you know, a lot of years of myelinating and, um, myelin once it's been laid down on a circuit doesn't go away. The only way that you can, um, choose better is by counter conditioning. It's the same with horses too, by the way, mm-hmm. you can't undo a behavior. All you can do is is train a new behavior that overrides that one and right. that it fills the need that that behavior did better, right. you know, and, and then you can counter condition it. So, um, but that old behavior, you know, like you're saying that old behavior is, it's always going to be available. But it's, it's in there. Right. It's in there. Right. Yeah. They, they, so there, so, some, sometimes if the, if the circuit isn't used for long enough, sometimes it does get pruned that, you know, Mm -hmm. our nervous system is a very efficient, um, system that does not waste energy. So Mm -hmm. if a, if a a branch in your, in your circuitry there is not getting used and it's wasted space that could maybe be used for something better. That's why we're such an evolving species that Mm -hmm. it has a lot to do with it. And so, um, in our sleep, those circuits that haven't been used for a super long time, do get marked. And if they get marked often enough, then they do get pruned, but mm-hmm. I don't have any clue how long that takes. And I think it depends on how much myelin is on the circuit. Mm-hmm. So if I've been myelinating a circuit since birth and I'm 47, right. I don't really expect those circuits to probably get pruned. They're just right. going to be, you know, less available. I hope. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But I think, you know, you, you watch somebody like Linda and she's been right. practicing these things from a young age. I mean, she started right. into, uh, personal development and leadership training and all these things at a young age. And yeah, I would guess in her early twenties. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I would guess that she still has these emotions come in, but like, you know, you're talking about, um, counter conditioning them and, and building new habits. I mean, I think that probably yeah. hers just come quickly. And we don't even see it happen, um, I I would guess. I love the idea that we are all works in progress and that we have the opportunity to change our brain and make improvements no matter what stage of life we're in. In part two of this conversation, we'll explore the obstacles that Christy has found that get in the way of students making progress. She'll also share about the new program that she's teaching that's been developed by Linda Pirelli. She'll share with us how it's different than the Pirelli program and also how it's a complimentary addition. I hope you'll tune in. And then if you haven't already, I'd love for you to follow or subscribe to this podcast. And if you know folks that you think would benefit from listening, please share. And finally, I'd love to invite you to join a Learner's Journey Facebook group. It's a private group for folks who listen to this podcast and they're from all over the world and it's designed for us to be able to share our journeys and support each other along the way. So I'd love for you to join in. A link is in the show notes. I hope you take a moment or two today and in the days ahead to practice joy and I am grateful that you're here and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.